0: In celebration of its 30th anniversary, Dance Cork, Firkin Crane has created a full season of events with artists from across the globe taking part in performances, residencies and classes. Choreographer John Scott explores relationships, race, identity and domestic violence in a physical approach to Shakespeare's Othello. This work will premiere this week in Cork. It's John's second Shakespeare work. His award-winning Lear was a major success in London, New York, Edinburgh and Cork, in fact and delighted to be joined by John Scott this evening from our Cork studio. And second time to approach The Bard, uh, the work of William Shakespeare. John, you had done so, as I said before, with King Lear. Why did you come back a second time and why did you come back to Oth- Othello?
1: Well, um, I mean, some people know before I studied dance, I actually went to college and I got a degree in English and I was going to become a writer and I was in. Immersed in Shakespeare, King Lear, and that, and I was attracted to Shakespeare always. And while I I pursued my career as a choreographer, also as a singer, but principally as a choreographer and a dancer, um, there was something about when I um, was commissioned to make Lear um, of rediscovering all the wonderful rhythms, the bodiness, the physicality of Shakespeare, and how. When he made the plays, they performed in the Globe in London, and it was very alive because people have this conception that Shakespeare is grand and fancy, and for people to speak beautifully, mm. and um, and it's actually very visceral and very earthy. And I was, uh, we were performing Lear, and um, something happened in my company years ago that um, one of my very inspirational dancers, an American dancer, who had this phenomenal talent and I made some wonderful works with him, he um, got into trouble in his life and um, went down a pathway that was um, self-destructive and um, drugs uh, and various other things that Mm. brought him to a bad place and um, to my horror one day... um, we were actually getting ready to perform Lear in Dublin and Cork, and um, I was sent news from New York that he had been arrested and had, um, in a in an outburst um, fueled by drug taking, had strangled his partner uh, oh. to death, and um, that upset us all. It um, he was this very, very special, very, very highly strung, but uh, quite loving, adorable, generous, wonderful um, person, wonderful artist. And we were all devastated. And it left this impression on me. And I was thinking of um, of Othello. Um, and I was aware um, when I was a child, there was somebody in my family who had um, had a, had a Difficult marriage to a kind of a, a brutal husband, and we were always, as children, told to not stay on the phone too long in case um, there trouble, was trouble. Arise, and, yeah. and I was aware of this, and it always frightened me, and it was always something that I I was horrified of, and it seemed like something that happened to other people. My grandmother couldn't bear to watch the play Othello or the opera because she was always worrying about her daughter and and the relationship, and uh, it. It was something that was there and as I I made a piece called "Body" You Out a few years ago that was about relationships and the duality in relationships um, when people break up and how they miss people, they miss things. And uh, another piece, Inventions, that Val Setterfield and Odoherty were in. And then when it came to Othello, there was something about the I've stripped the characters down. So we have yeah, Othello, so you, Desdemona you have, and Iago. Say, yeah, Just
0: explain, you, you, you've narrowed it down to three characters. Three Othello. characters
1: and we've got two people playing Othello. We've got two people playing Desdemona, a man and a woman. And then Valda Setterfield, who so wonderfully embodied Lear, mm. is playing Iago. Now, um, Valda is based in New York and with all the COVID and not moving around for so long and she wasn't able to travel. But I really wanted her and we had been talking about this project for a long time. So I'm working with this brilliant dance choreographer, filmmaker, Jason Akira Soma. And Jason and I went to New York and we worked with Valda and we filmed her. And Iago is kind of this character. What I love about Iago is um, Iago can address the audience. Shakespeare took the character Iago from the mystery Mm. plays, the miracle plays where it's a character of maybe change and in a miracle play might be the serpent in the garden of Eden telling Eve to go and eat the apple and or telling Cain to go and kill his brother Abel And um, and Iago is this kind of agent of change and this tempter and also can address the audience and can also be kind of funny and is yeah. by far the most... Three dimensional of all the characters, and um, some people find Desdemona a bit two dimensional. And I know sometimes when I see Othello, I'm just kind of—it's like if you go and see the Titanic, you're waiting for the iceberg, and yeah. you're just waiting for her to
0: die. You know that you know that she's going to be in trouble by the end of it. But interestingly oh, yeah. enough, you, you you say that you have you have Valdas Setterfield playing the character of Iago. So clearly, you're crossing the gender boundary there uh, without any doubt at all. And in the case of Desdemona, you have two. Uh, dancers in fact playing the part if you like a male and a female dancer playing that part
1: Yes and it it brings um, there's um, they interchange the two Othellos and the two Desimonians interchange so one is not with the other there isn't like a a male couple and a male-female couple, they kind of, everyone switches around. I suppose you could think of the way Brian Friel uses that idea in Philadelphia, Here I Come with the Garb Private and Garb Mm. Public, and that um, we have um, Favreau de Sola, and in Cork, Vitor Bassi, and um, as the Othellos, and then we'll have Favour and Mufutar Youssef in Dublin, and then we have um, Conor Thomas Doherty, who's this wonderful dancer who's been working with me for years, and Magdalena Hilak, and they're both Desdemona, and they they do different things.
0: They have different physicalities. Um, so let me just clarify then for that. So it's it's not a case that there are two Desdemonas on stage at the same time. It's just that in in different performances, in one case uh, a male dancer plays the part of Desdemona, and another night a female uh, dancer plays. Oh the part. no!
1: They're all on stage all the time, all of them, creating at the same time. chaos. <laughs> and uh, we very much disembodied it. Um, we are using a lot of the key moments and key quotes and the the poetry, Shakespeare's text, Shakespeare's poetry, is it 's very visceral it 's very real, and in a way it 's like an action film or it 's like one of those things that people watch on Netflix with people having fights falling in love, killing each other and the The thing about there is a there is a relationship there is jealousy, there is mm. loss of control there i 've read different things in the research that sometimes some people feel. Iago is in love with Othello or that Iago is jealous that he thinks Othello may have slept with his wife or that um, Othello and Desdemona's marriage is unconsummated. There are all these different um, and then there's the class thing, there's the race thing, Mm. um, which is incredibly relevant now. When I started thinking of Othello back in 2016 and talking with Valda about it. It's the situation when you think of everything that's happened in Black Lives Matter, in everything else, in the violence, in the lawlessness, um, and the way society has gone completely crazy and completely upside down. It's, It's very real. And last year, I was performing in the Venice Biennale with Una Doherty, and I was around Venice a lot. And... As I was researching Othello, I was thinking of the water, of the, those dark laneways, the, the intrigue, yeah. the whispering. And then, of course, it takes place mostly in Cyprus um, when Othello goes to, to fight the Turks. And and I've looked at different versions The British National Theatre did where it was kind of very much a military garrison and there was a version done that was almost like Operation yeah, so Desert Storm. Bringing,
0: yeah, you're bringing all of those elements together. But, you, you know, the, the title of the piece is Othello, Maybe a Dance. And you, you've told us, um, and the publicity material talks about the physicality of the piece. Now, it's not surprising that a dance piece is a physical piece. But is there something, is there a kind of violence in the physicality in and around Othello that's different from other dance pieces that you have made.
1: Yes, we think of strangulation as a physical part of the a part of the physical dance vocabulary and if anybody goes near anybody's neck or if 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 people lean in, they might lean in. We have these very intense duets and they're leaning in maybe to lift someone to help someone, to support someone, to maybe make a position that is a loving, giving position, or there is an edge of brutality Mm. that sometimes it looks like a fight, and then sometimes it looks like something that's going too far. And I tell you, Sean, one of the things that uh, really came to me as I was looking into it and when we got into the studio and we started trying things out was the sid vicious Nancy Spongengen relationship where they were um, well I mean he stabbed her in a in a crazy drug attack, and there was just this this self destructiveness right. and this destructiveness um, so all in that, of that, and and also in what happened with with our dancer a couple of years ago, yeah. who is now in jail for manslaughter. It's a it's a horrible tragedy, a horrible tragedy, which um which still haunts us. Uh, we're we're still in contact with yeah. him and um, and the family of of his. Um, partner um, uh, will never recover. It's, yeah. it's um huge, and huge we've all out. maybe been in sometimes in a situation where things have gone a little bit over an edge in an encounter, be it a personal encounter, a work encounter, almost a mugging, a burglary, that there is an element of danger, there's an element of risk and there's an element yeah. of maybe control, abuse going too far.
0: I'll- all right, is, John. It's a Vicious thing as well Yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot at play there and clearly all of those elements playing into the production indeed and thanks for telling us something about it this evening That's John Scott Othello Maybe a Dance will be at Dance Cork Firkin Crane from October the 21st until October the 22nd then it's at the Pro- Project Arts Centre in Dublin from October the 26th through until October the 29th and you'll find out full details on irishmoderndancetheatre.com The year is 1949, and from a little village in Southern Ireland, 19-year-old Peter O'Farrell leaves the country with his girlfriend, Margaret, having fallen in love some months previously. what Peter doesn't know is that on their journey to London, Margaret is already pregnant. They They marry in London, and within 10 years, they have six children. Unfortunately, theirs is a love story without a happy ending. Against the backdrop of the 1950s and 60s prejudice against the Irish in England, Peter turns to alcohol and eventually simply disappears. This is not a plot to a fictitious play. No, it's a true life story, but it forms the basis of a performance piece by French-Irish performer Kelly Riviere. Uh, The show is simply called An Irish Story and having toured successfully around France for the last two years, it comes to Ireland later this month. I'm delighted to have Kelly Riviere join us from Paris right now. And um, this is an extraordinary story set, set against the backdrop of emigration. It's a detective story on your part, in fact, because Peter O'Farrell was your grandfather. What was the kind of story that or how was your grandfather's story told in your own family? First of all, Kelly.
2: Well, as far as I know, I know that Peter and Margaret, so my grandfather and my grandmother, uh, met very young when they were 16 in a small village near Limerick called Not Caron, and then they had to move to England. Actually, my grandfather moved to England to find a job because as you all well know, in the thirties in Ireland, Uh, I mean, in the 50s in Ireland, there weren't many job opportunities. Mm. And then my grandmother came to join him in England. So that's what I know. But of course, the true story isn't exactly that. And this is what I tell in the Irish story, in my play. But I won't say the true reason why they left Ireland, because then I'd be spoiling part of the pot of the Of
0: course. And that's... That that's that's perfectly understandable, but was was your grandfather's story? What I'm quite interested in. Really, was how discussed was it at home, or how much of a, was it really a subject that wasn't gone into too deeply?
2: Yes, it wasn't gone into too too deeply. Yes, that's the that's the reason why I did a play. Actually, I think it's to lift up the silence, mm. the taboo that was uh, surrounding this name, this this figure of my grandfather, it wasn't really much talked about. When I grew up, you know, as a kid, I mean, I I used to see my mother sometimes cry in the kitchen, and I didn't know why. And I used to ask her, but why are you crying, mom? And she said, well, you don't know what it's like not to know your father. And so then when I grew up as a teenager, I started to put the bits of the puzzle back together. And I thought, but You knew him, you know, you knew him a bit. And she used to say, yes, but it was in and off. You know, he disappeared Mm. for sometimes a few days, sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months. And then he came back and they had a chance. And then he left again and then.
0: I tell you, dates
2: were blurred. Everything was, you know, I couldn't. Yes.
0: Yeah you 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 were just so, um, you, you were dropping so, in and out so, there Kelly I'll tell you what I'll, you're dropping in and out there what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll play the clip and we'll see if we can sort that that dropping in and out that's happening at the moment so this is this is at a point I suppose you're at this start at this stage you're interested in acting Kelly Riviera is interested in acting and she's met a boy uh, a, a, a fellow who is her boyfriend at the, at this stage they've played opposite each other on stage and they're having a drink in the pub afterwards and this is the conversation that happens between them Kelly Riviera playing both herself in this case and her boyfriend at that time
2: I'm 23 and I've just discovered theatre on a whim I went to Paris in theatre class at the Cour Florent, I fell in love with Fred when he yelled Stella in a streetcar named Desire I took it for me since then we've moved in together and we smoke rolled up cigarettes want some whiskey no no thank you Whiskey is a touchy subject in my family. It's the devil's drink. The devil's drink? Why's that? Because of my grandfather. He's Irish. He drank too much of it. Your grandfather? You've never mentioned him. What's he called? He was called Peter. Was? Why? Is he dead? Yes. No. I don't know. Maybe. He. he disappeared. Oh. disappeared? Like. disappeared? Yes. One day he went to buy cigarettes and never came back. No, but for real. For real?
0: That's Kelly Riviera in a scene there from her piece An Irish Story which is coming to these shores very soon indeed and Kelly speaking to us this evening from Paris I believe you're you're speaking to us from this evening Kelly. We get a sense in that clip obviously it's you playing all the parts now in that particular scene we only get two of them. Is it 25 characters across the entire evening that you managed to, to give us Kelly?
2: Yes it's 25 characters that's exactly it. I mean there are main characters like my mom, my dad, my grandmother, uh, my brother. Um, but, and there are little characters like a policeman, like uh, my partners, um, the father of my children, my children. So, all in all, it's 25 characters, yeah.
0: And given the silence that was around the subject, I, I suppose particularly in the case of your mother who may have had more information than she was prepared to impart uh, to you, I'm not sure about that, but it was a taboo subject. Was was there consternation? Were there difficulties when you announced, I'm doing a play, I'm doing a play about granddad?
2: Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Uh, but actually I created the play without se- without telling Anybody in my family, especially not my mom. So I created it in the kind of submarine way, you know. And then, of course, I had to go to Avignon, which is a French festival. festival, theatre festival and of course as I have two children somebody had to look after my children and so I asked my mum and I said you know, Mom, look sit down we had a beer, I have to tell you something I wrote a play, she went hmm. Uh, it's a play about about your father who disappeared she went, mm-hmm, okay and I said, it's about your story and she said, well I hope you don't mention certain secret families and I said no of course, but of course I do mention some secret families <laughs> and then she saw the play in Avignon and she was uh, she was she had mixed feelings because on one hand she was happy that her daughter was successful. And on the other hand, uh, it was I mean, she was confused that I was um, telling the, the story of her family and of her father, which I understand, you know, these mixed, mixed feelings.
0: Yeah, but I wondered I wondered um, when, when you say that, uh, you know, th- that you did a lot of this in a submarine type of way you did it you did all the research you did all the looking around and finding out as much as you could without speaking to your mother who of course would be one of the major sources of the story yeah. there's there's a line in that clip where we just heard where Fred the boyfriend of the, of the time asks you you know is is he dead and the answer is yes no i don't know maybe was that, yes. ultimately, yeah. the writing of the play and the performing of the... Was it was it about trying to answer that question for yourself? And how difficult a question, how difficult a topic was that, that you just didn't know the answer to that question?
2: Yes, it was exactly why I wrote it, actually, to try and find the truth. Because I thought that a person like my grandfather, Peter, who had generated a lot of life, you know, because he had six children, these children had children who had children themselves, and I'm part of this family tree, and I thought this person who has generated so much life, it's such a pity that we can't talk about him anymore. And so to know whether a person is dead or not, whether a person is alive or not, is soothing. Mm. I mean, for me, it's, um, it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful not to know where the person is. So I definitely did the play to try and find an answer. And because I didn't find an answer in real life, because, you know, I contacted a private detective. I asked questions to my grandmother. I asked questions to my cousins. And because I didn't find the truth, I thought, well, as I am an actress, by using my tool, which is theater, I'm going to try to make him Mm. live again through theater and this is what this is the power of theater to make people live again to to give life to ghosts so this is what i did and fortunately i mean it met an audience and this was this was a great surprise to me actually
0: yeah, and, and, and am I right in thinking? In fact, it, it, it was the birth of I don't know if it was your your first son or one of your children, a son, and it was a freckly face and ob- auburn hair that set you off on this on this kind of uh, quest in the first place, or certainly it was part of it. No, we seem to have lost uh, Kelly there. Listen, we'll, we'll have to leave it there. I think I, what I'll do is let me tell you the dates of uh, Kelly's uh, one-woman show, An Irish Story. It's a fascinating tale, clearly, and there's lots of mystery in there about this disappearing man and that, with the question I wanted to ask Kelly about 1950s uh, England and how he dealt with the the kind of prejudice that was there at the time. However, we can't get her back. We will leave it at that. Uh, thanks to Kelly Riviera, her one woman play is called an Irish story. Comes to Ireland later this month. Performances will be at Alliance Française on in Dublin on November the second, the Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray on November the fourth, the Everyman in Cork on November the eighth, and the Lime Tree in Limerick on November the 10th. So that brings us to almost 25 minutes to eight. New exhibition Unearthing Ireland's revolutionary past has opened at the National Museum of Ireland, Collins Barracks. Imaging Conflict photographs From revolutionary Ireland, 1913 to 1923, looks at pictures captured by the citizens of Ireland at a time when photography was becoming more accessible. The display includes includes photos of Irish men and women in conflict overseas, images taken on the streets of Dublin directly after the 1916 Rising, as well as photos from IRA surveillance files on British soldiers, coupled with written details likely snuck out of Dublin Castle by a pro-IRA clerical officer. There are 150 images in total, five photo books on display, the majority not seen before. The exhibition is a collaboration between the National Museum of Ireland and Photo Museum Ireland. It will run right through until 2024. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by curator and librarian at the National Museum of Ireland, Dr Orla Fitzpatrick. And Orla, really, I suppose we take so much for granted today in terms of the, the phone and our cameras on the phones that we're walking down the street, we see something, we snap it. We just take a photograph of it and, and you know, the kind of the citizen journalist has become a phenomenon. The situation with photography back at the period we're talking about here, the beginning, that kind of second decade of the 20th century, photography was a, in a very different place.
3: It was not a different place, but it was changing. It was a period of technological change. Uh, so it was a little bit easier than it had been previously to take a photograph. Um And I think that's reflected in the type yeah. of images we have. They're a little bit more casual than maybe they would have been a couple of decades before that.
0: Yeah, because I suppose a couple of decades in the late latter part of the, the 19th century and even maybe into the early part of the 20th century, you'd be talking about getting people to sit down, getting them to stand stock still and, you know, using whatever kind of technology there was that you had to hold the the frame for maybe... 10, 15, 20 seconds to actually get a snapshot. We're in a different place now.
3: We are and what you have is small handheld cameras and they're inexpensive and that's the big thing and that's how we get the citizen's eye, the citizen's view of the streets because Kodak in, from the 1890s onwards were producing these small, you know, mm. it's miniaturisation and it's also, we have two cameras in the exhibition which are, they're very desirable, well-designed products, Kodak vest pocket cameras and uh, shows where it was going yeah. uh, and I think and, I
0: mean the pocket camera even, even the fact that it was called a pocket camera at that stage it it tells us it kind of it was the, the the 20th century the early 20th century version of the camera on the phone nowadays
3: yeah discreet and you could you know move around the city with them and record what, you were, what yeah, was in, and, straight in front and of you in
0: fact some of the images and, and the images you've chosen images for us to share this evening we, we're going to send them up on Twitter so if you want to follow what Orla is telling us about, go to at RTE Arena and therein you will find the various images that we're speaking about. And the first one that we're going to tweet, I wouldn't fancy being the chap who's the subject of this particular uh, secret photograph taken in the uh, Sergeant, uh, in the internment camp in the Corra in 1921. Tell us exactly what the, what the image is, if you would, Orla, what we're looking at here.
3: What well, we're looking at is a photograph taken in Prisoner Hut number one by Joseph Lawless uh, in Wrath and Termit Camp in the Curra, And we chose this as the key, myself and the co-curator, Brenda Malone, she's the curator of military history. We chose this as the key image for the exhibition because it really is all about looking, all about people watching other people. And in the image you can see... Um, a captain, Captain Rope, uh he's the guard. You mm. can see a fellow prisoner of Joseph Lawless's and we hear and we know from uh Lawless's uh Bureau of Military History witness statement that Captain Rope heard the click but couldn't see the camera because Lawless was using one of these vest pocket Kodak cameras, which were very discreet. Yeah. But it really said- is it's a very um it's very exemplary of people watching other people yeah. watching people and, you know, the idea that he was named and people knew what this captain looked like, what well, that could be yeah. used for outside. Well, it it's, wasn't
0: to say, here's the nice uh, sergeant who's our captain who's looking after me in the exactly. camp. I don't think that was his reason for taking it. And it's yeah. interesting that the the, 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 the the fellow prisoner who's standing very much in the foreground of the photograph here, the, 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 the British soldier is back in the background kind of smoking a cigarette out in the middle of the, the grounds, you know that the guy who's standing there is complicit in the whole act because he's looking directly at the captain and he's clearly covering lawless, you know, so that lawless couldn't be seen just discreetly taking Very that photograph.
3: Very much so. And lawless was taking a big risk, you know, taking those photographs within the camp. He also recorded camp life, uh entertainment, uh People in the camp hospital, that type of thing. So there are 35 photographs. He donated them himself in 1950. So that's a really strong link yeah. to the photographer. And
0: you wonder if obviously the camera was smuggled in and somehow the film then was smuggled out and developed. Like that, it, even managing that was, was quite a task in and of itself, wasn't and it?
3: And it's great that we still have them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's move on then. Uh, at RTE Arena to watch these images as Orla Fitzpatrick is talking to us about them. This is from the new exhibition at the National Museum of Ireland, Collins Barracks, Imaging Conflict. We have the Smith album here with handwritten captions showing Eden Key in 1916. So I suppose we need to know what the Smith album is first of all, Orla.
3: Well, the Smith album is a snapshot album and it traces the citizens' journey around the city in the aftermath of 1916. The actual prints themselves are very small. Um, We have the original album in the exhibition, but then we also enlarged some of them. And this is where our cooperation with Photo Museum Ireland, Mm. Dan Scully's excellent printing skills were used to enlarge some of the images. But what I love about it is not only the captions, but also you see the people of Dublin looking at the runes. And runes and photography, it's a very strong link. It mm. was something that was captured from the beginning of photography. But the strength yeah, of the
0: the, the... the buildings are all, they've been bombed out of existence here.
3: Exactly. And uh, the, the real strength of the Smith album is that it shows lesser, scene, lesser known mm. scenes. I think the press photographers went out and maybe took... The GPO and other yeah. places, but this is Smith's own vision of the city. Uh, we don't know much, it's not actually Smith. Smith I was going to Smith. say that it's Smith's
0: it's, it's, in inverted commas, is isn't inverted
3: it? Commons. Smith was the donor, um, mm. and the only clue that we have to the photographer is an arrow on um, an Eden Key ruined building saying, My office. Uh, we've tried to trace that wow. through Tom's directories, yeah. but um, it was a very populated office space. So we actually don't know who took the photographs and that anonymity as well is something that really intrigues us. Uh, you yeah, it is the I'm, citizen, it could be anybody.
0: Yeah, but when you think of the history of uh, the Rising in particular and how, you know, the attitude of some of the citizens of Dublin at the time was far from... Uh, for for the rebellion, it was yeah. very much anti, and that the, these guys were spat at as they were being marched off down down Eden Key, probably. Ex- in fact, yeah, and so, this
3: and this man, this person walked around yeah. immediately afterwards, um, and possibly
0: and didn't want. To, cause that, it's hard to tell. Do do we get a sense from the other f- images that you have from the in inverted commas Smith album? Do we get a sense of the, the where the political allegiance of of the Smith character might lie?
3: Not really, it's quite neutral in mm. in that in that in those terms. Uh, what I like about it as well is you see the clothing that people yeah. are wearing. There's a bicycles There's bicycles in the shots. and you also see the types of shops and the types of street signage and posters for plays that were going on. So it really gives you a real flavour of the city at that moment. Mind
0: you, we're not seeing much in terms of shop frontage in this particular one no, that I have here gone. tonight. Everything <laughs> is gone. But in other, in other ones, obviously, those type of things, there are real social history aspect to that, I guess. You can
3: really, and because we've enlarged mm. them, you can really zone in on that.
0: You've also, it's not just photographs of Dublin uh, and Ireland at the, in, in the period, you've also gone to the continent for, for some of them. Let's look at this uh, particular next one, at RTE Arena, if you want to look at our third image, which is taken from the destruction of Ypres. Interesting to compare it with the Eden Key picture that we've just been looking at. Uh, where is this from and where did this come from, Orla?
3: Well, this is an an album that was put together by Captain Hitchcock from Burr and Offley, and he was in the Leinster Regiment Um, and the album is very detailed, very lured and this is a photograph of Epe showing the cloth hall and the cathedral. Uh, It's heavily annotated, which I think is where the interest really comes mm. he he identifies himself in the photograph and two comrades who are called the three toughs and then he's updated the caption to say that one of them a captain morland dies a month later from but, uh, wounds received in another battle uh, So it really is that Personalised view of Eep. Um, in the exhibition we display it along a postcard And these postcards were sent back Postcards see, showing a similar rune mm. But without that personal detail um,
0: Yeah and it is It's the annotation that it, it, I'm sure Tells us a lot about the the Captain Hitchcock character as well And the type of situation he was in Fighting in the First World War
3: And at the opening last week, uh, Professor Luke Gibbons informed us that uh, Hitchcock's brother was the producer, um, Ingram. So Rex Ingram, oh, who's right, yeah. a famous, yeah. famous Hollywood producer. So two brothers who had two different experiences, but both obviously had strong visual sensibilities. I was just going to
0: say, yeah, it wasn't yeah. off the ground he picked it up in terms of his, his ability. Now, talking about annotations, image number four and its annotations. Wow, look at this one. At RTE Arena. If you want to see the image that uh, Orla is talking to us about now, this is Dr Orla Fitzpatrick, the curator, co-curator of this exhibition that we're speaking about, Imaging Conflict, photographs from the revolutionary era, Ireland, 1913 to 1923. <laughs> Describe what we're looking at here, Orla. This is, I, the detail is kind of chilling.
3: Well, this is from a IRA surveillance file and it's a large group photograph showing um, an auxiliary company based in Dublin Castle but each member of this company has been identified with handwritten mm. lettering, handwritten annotations um, and it's part of a portfolio stroke album that came into the museum only two years ago by a uh, donation from uh, Jerry Fitzpatrick no relation and Anna Pegley <laughs> um, and it's a fascinating document. It brings together uh, photographs Some smuggled out of Dublin Castle, some cut out of the equivalent of uh, society pages and it's triangulated with observations and with handwritten notes that enable these people to be identified. For example, on that page there that we have on that image, um, some of them are known you know to be in other gangs they're identified for other things that they did on other pages people might be pictured in their military uniform but in brackets would be written "When off duty wears a grey suit or walks quite nervously Mm. some people have an X over their foreheads so it would have been very dangerous to have this document in in your possession or also to be pictured in it.
0: Yeah, and but I'm wondering about this. Do, do we know the source of the original picture without the annotation? You know, getting your hands and and for the IRA intelligence officers at the time to get their hands on a picture like this. Would, was it probably again uh, somebody with with sympathies within Dublin Castle, or well, what would you? What's your guess on it?
3: Well, our guess is that we know from the Bureau of History military statements, and we know from different histories of the period that within Dublin Castle there was a phenomenon called the greening of Dublin Castle, whereby mm. clerical staff who may appear to have been unimportant were listening to a lot of things and taking it all in, um, and we know that people were followed and that sort of surveillance was going on. Yeah, like um, the, the
0: Stephen Ray character in in the, exactly, in the Neil Roy, Jordan. Exactly, Broy. Yeah. 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 So, Who's you know, kind of an amalgamation of people yeah, who did this type of did thing. this
3: type of this type of thing. And there are variations on some of those photographs in other collections. So, they were in currency. Also studios, photo studios. Um, somebody would come in, have their photograph taken to maybe, you know, mark promotion within mm. the military. And those photographs were leaked out by the studio. So, all over the city people were watching and photographing yeah, and, and uh, using photography. Would
0: you have gone to this state of looking at some of the uh, annotated uh, some of the names and people who are annotated and see did they make it through to the end beyond 1923?
3: We haven't identified an assassination per mm. se. Uh, we don't have the album that long. Yeah. Um, but what we have looked at is um, you know maybe the face of some of the people whether yeah. they emigrated or left. We haven't Identified somebody who was right. killed necessarily
0: from on the basis of that, this type of yeah, yeah this type of information. Yeah. Uh, at Atorty Arena again then for our final image, Eleanor and Rosamond Poppy Burrows. Uh, tell us who they are and how important was it to have? Because obviously everything we've spoken about so far has is seen from not necessarily seen from a male perspective, but most of the subjects are male. But, for, for by Eden Key, which had some women dressed in in frocks that we were looking at from behind.
3: Well, that is the makeup of the collection and we were definitely drawing from the National Museum's collection. Um, This photograph shows two Irish sisters who nursed in uh, Rouen in France uh, during World War One. And their albums show them very much at the front. They show them, uh, you know, encountering pretty harsh, um, pretty harsh casualties. Um, They also show funerals. Their album also has a lighter touch um, and this photograph is very much... Uh, it's
0: lovely it's very kind of a very human
3: family yeah, sort of a photograph.
0: a little sister looking at... I'm, I'm presuming that yeah. the woman on the left is the little sister looking up towards big sisters. There's a sense of that there? Yeah, there's there? a
3: rapport yeah. and um, some of the more light-hearted photographs in the um, exhibition come from the Burroughs album. They show downtime on the front and people right. in recreation. But then we also use their album to discuss... We have a section called... War and the body, and when are bodies shown, and when are they not? And in World War One, there was a prohibition on showing the bodies of of dead soldiers, mainly due to wanting to continue recruitment. But the Burroughs sisters photographed some funerals at the front. And also makeshift graves, and we have that in the section.
0: Well, you can only imagine what that would have meant to the families of those soldiers yes, at the time. they made a you know? list also yeah.
3: of soldiers they nursed who died.
0: Oh, that's a, that's an extraordinary element to the image this story. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of those images with us, Thank a, you. A Very, very interesting indeed. The curator and librarian of the uh, at the National Museum there of Ireland, Dr. Orla Fitzpatrick, uh, coming into us this evening to talk about imaging conflict, photographs from revolutionary era Ireland, nineteen thirteen through to nineteen twenty three. It runs through until 2024 at the National Museum of Ireland, Collins Barracks, in collaboration with Photo Museum Ireland. Every year, Music for Galway presents an annual concert in memory of Emily Anderson, one of the most distinguished alumni in the history of University of Galway. This year, the Emily Anderson concert takes place tomorrow night, Thursday, October the 20th, at the Anderson Hall in NUI Galway. And it will feature new music from three of the first graduates from the new BA in music at the university. The three graduates were each asked to write a short work for violin and piano in response to the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. And these pieces will be performed by acclaimed Dutch violinist Rosanne Philippens, alongside Hungarian pianist Zoltan Fedjar both of whom have flown in specially for this concert. Alongside the new works, they will perform three sonatas for violin and piano by Beethoven, sonatas 7, numbers 7, 8 and 10. And joining me this evening to speak about the music and the concert is violinist Roseanne Philippens and in fact Roseanne I believe you're not long in Galway you arrived earlier today so you're you're hot off the aeroplane are are you settling in well so far?
4: Yes, yes, I, I had many delays when I arrived in the hotel and I'm very happy about that.
0: Oh, well, that's good. Yes. And and I suppose it's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of down to work fairly quickly for you, given that the concert is is tomorrow night. Zoltan, the, yeah. your Hungarian pianist, is that a regular uh, collaboration, collaborative uh, project between the two of you?
4: Actually, we almost didn't play together yet. Uh, Also because of COVID, we had uh, some concerts and they didn't happen. And so we had a big gap in our collaboration. And now this is the... Uh, how do you say that in English? Revival. No, the we yeah. are well. We picked it up. We picked yeah. it up. Yeah, and you're, uh, you're,
0: you're dealing with th- stuff that was postponed and getting back to getting back to things yeah. um, that that you hadn't had a chance to do. And exactly. um, your mother is a pianist. Your sister is a jazz violinist. You've been playing a violin since the violin since the age of three. Was it always going to be the classical route for you? Yeah. or were you tempted to go down the jazz route like your sister had done? Ah,
4: uh, um. Well, I mean, I I am very drawn to jazz, but uh, to play classical music because it's uh, it's uh, so rich. I mean, there there are hundreds of years to choose from, so. Um, no, I didn't really have the desire to to change the style, but um, I like to explore sometimes a little bit other worlds. Actually, to come back then to classical music with a richer soul.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, I suppose when you've got Beethoven, Mozart, Pro- Prokofiev, Stravinsky and Bartok to choose from, there's plenty to be going with there before <laughs> before you start broadening i <laughs> else, 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 elsewhere. Yeah, we're lucky. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly the violin sonatas of Beethoven, the violin sonatas that you will be playing uh, in the in the in the concert t- tomorrow night. Does he do this with particularly in these works with the sonatas? Does he give equal work to the piano and the violin, or where where do you think Beethoven's preferences lie, if there are is a preference at all?
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's a good question because um I I thought about that a lot the last mostly the last days because we already played yesterday night a concert in Holland mm. and I I had a lot of concertos in the last weeks the uh, Ceballius and Vivaldi seasons and and that's all about the violin and about showing off and a lot and um and then I went to Beethoven, and it's a it's a piano-violin sonata, that's for sure. Yeah. And your role as a violinist, I mean, you cannot think of anything else than the music. There's no show of, uh, there's no show of also in a violinistic way, like look at me playing uh, fast or something. Uh, when there when there's something virtuosic, it's only to serve a kind the, of the music. musical idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and this is so. Great
0: for my health. It's. Um, yeah, because I, I thought all violinists only wanted to show off and show why, what great virtuoso players well. they were. I joke. <laughs> I joke. I <laughs> just. Listen, let's have a listen to a little yeah. bit of the Sonata Number no. 10, which is one of the three that you'll be playing at the concert. And it really gives us a sense of that equality between the two instruments. This is the opening movement okay. with Yehudi Menuhin on violin, Wilhelm Kempf on piano. it goes on another little journey that's the opening of the first movement of the violin sonata number 10 in G major of Ludwig van Beethoven with Yehudi Menuhin on violin Wilhelm Kempf on piano and it's one of the three Beethoven sonatas that Roseanne Philippens will be playing as part of our concert for Music for Galway tomorrow evening um, alongside those Beethoven pieces and I know you, 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 we won't get into the specifics of any of the, the three pieces but you have three new pieces from three, new, from three students who've just completed their B.A. Is in nuI uh, Galway in the University there have you had a ch- will you get a chance to speak with the composers or have you already done that Roseanne
4: no I uh, we are going to meet them tomorrow
0: and that's so quite exciting they, they come to the... I guess it's quite exciting to have the composer in the room with you
4: <laughs> yes it can be very very exciting yes uh, when that happens it's uh, yeah, is it, you can ask Anything that you're creating yeah. in the moment, and that's we we wish we wish for it with someone like Beethoven so much. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, you'll have to yeah. you'll have to put up with the three students. Beethoven is not available, I believe, for rehearsals tomorrow. <laughs> you'll have to do without <laughs> yeah. him. Well, listen, no, thanks. I'm
4: happy to meet them. Ben. Yes,
0: absolutely. Thanks for being with us this evening, Roseanne. That's Roseanne Philippines performing alongside pianist Zoltan Varvi. That's tomorrow, Thursday, October the 20th, at the annual Emily Anderson Concert at U. University of Galway, presented by Music for Galway, takes place at 8 pm. The concert in the Emily Anderson Hall of the on the university campus. The duo will be performing newly invite, invited work from three graduates of the university Ellison, Hassel Kramer, Laura Hennehan, and Katie Feeney, as well as Beethoven Sonatas numbers 7, 8, and 10. Musicforgalway.ie for full details.